Well, happy Jubilate Sunday. Did anybody know it was Jubilate Sunday? Yeah, me either. So, true story. Um, <laughs> I, my, my working sermon title all week was Post-Easter Sermon. <laughs> and all of the creativity, I get, again, I'll just br- blame COVID brain, all the creativity that goes with that. And I thought, you know, if come sun- Saturday night, post-Easter sermon is still my working title, that's probably a sign to me that I really don't know what it is I'm trying to say. Saturday night, last night at 11 o'clock, there we were. I was like, eh, I bet it has a name. And I literally Googled, what's the third Sunday after Easter called? (laughs) Happy Jubilate Sunday. It apparently comes from a a hymn that's normally read, I don't know, something about the liturgy or something. You guys from a Catholic background, y'all have a name for everything. Like, so, yeah, that's, I'm just stealing that this morning. Um, it has absolutely nothing to do with my sermon. True story. But, you know, I figured it was, it, it, it reads better than post-Easter sermon. So we'll get there. But I really did, you know, all that in kind of a, a humorous um, mindset. But I, I stuck, I was kind of keeping that whole post-Easter sermon title um, because I really do want to circle back a little bit today um, and, and kind of hang on to that thought because the attitude of this sermon is very much, okay, three weeks ago we had Easter, we celebrated resurrection, well, now what? You know, how, how do we continue on living in, in the light and life of the resurrection? Now, I told you, um, you know, COVID, COVID brain has really affected me this week, so out of fear that a good bit of my sermon is not coherent, um, I want to kind of start this morning, and I'm just going to give you like the punchline, like right up front. Like I want to make sure I'm super clear in what I'm trying to get across to you. Um, And the reason for that is because I do have something in my heart that I really am passionate about and that I really believe that the Lord wants to say to us. And I just want to articulate it really, really well and, and, and put it out there, you know, just in case the rest of my notes or whatever, don't do that as explicitly as I hope. Um, and so, I, you know, right up front here, I'm just going to kind of tell you, hey, here's what the sermon's about. And maybe we can go to lunch early or something. I don't know. Um, so I want you just to understand me very clearly um, and uh, very explicitly. So here we go. You ready? So here is the good bit of news that I want each of you to absorb and take home with you today and leave with if nothing else that I say makes any sense. Okay. Um, so let's just start, right? with the truth that each one of you, every single one of you in this room, all of your children, all of your family members, all of our kids back there who, oh, that's fun, they're wearing party hats back there, I'm not sure what's going on. So all of our kids back there, like having all sorts of fun, you know, that for each one of them, through the work of Jesus's death on the cross, that we celebrate on Good, or we observe on Good Friday, which paid the debt for our sin, and through his resurrection that we celebrate on Easter, that conquered death, each one of you are invited to experience reconciliation with God and receive his gift of salvation and eternal life. You know, it's like getting an invitation to the best birthday party ever because it's your re-birthday party. And so what an amazing invitation you have. Now, that's Gospel 101, right? That's the truth of what this means, that Jesus died and rose again. So that's like level one of the good news, okay? But wait, there's more. It's like those infomercials, right? But I promise I'm not trying to sell you anything. We're not going there. Um, There's more. 
if we accept this amazing invitation, there's this amazing process that we begin called sanctification where the Spirit of God, God's Holy Spirit that now lives and dwells in us by some amazing miracle, begins this process called sanctification, begins to renew us, begins to heal us of all of our brokenness, begins to do all these things we never imagined, begins to actually transform us from the inside out, and we begin to grow into mature believers, into mature and maturing disciples of Christ. That's great news, right? So not only are we saved from sin and death, but he saves us into this new process of sanctification that begins to transform us by his spirit from the inside out. But wait, there's even more. One of the most amazing things about this transformation is the freedom that we are offered in it. Like actual, real freedom. The first verse of Galatians 5 says this, and I think I've got it on the slide, yeah. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by this yoke of slavery. It really is, for, I, I used to think that was the silliest verse. It's for freedom. He set us free. Well, duh. Like, isn't that what it says? Like, that's redundant. But no, really. He set you free so that you can experience actual, livable freedom from these things. Like an actual, tangible breaking off of the old junk and the old man and the old way. Okay? It's really true. He set us free so that you can actually choose not to engage any longer in that junk of the flesh. That you can turn away from all those things that kept you bound and kept you enslaved. It means that we no longer have to be captive to the mindsets and the thought patterns and the attitudes and the behaviors that kept us locked into immaturity and bound in our sin and brokenness. What amazing news. Yes? Do we really get, get it? Hebrews 12.1 says this, Let us throw off every encumbrance and the sin that so easily tangles. That picture there is like ripping it off, letting it go, getting away from it, and move away. Being unbound from these things. Getting away from it. Actually experiencing real freedom like chains falling off. Do you realize how good of news that is that we have been set free? It's such great news. Or maybe I should say that we at least have the invitation to be set free. Do we choose that? All right. So with that set up, there are some very specific implications of this freedom that I want to just mention and talk about quickly this morning. Um, I want to make sure you hear one in particular um, that has really been on my heart that I hope we can all grow in and experience because it's actually something the Lord's been working on me in me on as well. So Two weeks ago now, I believe, um, yeah, last week, Encounter and then Melissa. So two weeks ago, uh, Melissa was up here sharing, and she shared with you the good news that part of this sort of freedom package that we get as part of recip being recipients of God's grace and accepting his salvation and his forgiveness is that you don't have to be offended. Like, you just don't. Like, you can actually rise above offense and not have that be a part of your M.O., in your life like isn't that amazing like if someone once said something dumb to you or m underestimated you or misunderstood you like it's okay you actually don't have to take offense to those things you don't have to live in bondage to that response and that reaction and as we mature in Christ we can actually put off offense and again what great news because 
if you guys are like me, like, offense is super heavy to carry, isn't it? Like, doesn't it just keep you bound? Like, doesn't it weigh you down when you're offended by something that's happened or something that someone has done for you, uh, done to you? Um, you know, it isolates. It brings discord in relationships. It brings heaviness. It undermines our empathy, our compassion. It wrecks us, and it enslaves us to its own selfish desires, to where we're holding someone else even in bondage. And today I want to talk about uh, one more part of kind of our freedom package that we get that goes along with that not being offended. Sorry, I'm probably going to have to do that a lot. Um, this, this freedom package that is our life in Christ. As a maturing follower of Jesus, not only can you put off offense, but you actually don't have to be defensive either. And I think that goes hand in hand with what Melissa shared with us. We put off offense, but then we also resist being defensive. And, and it's two sides, kind of, I think, of the same coin that really matter. You do not have to strive to justify yourself. Have you ever felt that weight? That you have to justify yourself? You do not have to strive to give yourself worth. You do not have to give yourself identity. You do not have to make sure that everyone understands you. These burdens are not yours to carry, and you don't have to get defensive about any of that or anything else that the enemy tries to snag you with. All right. Is that good news? Yep. We're all done. We can just like go to lunch now and pack up. All right. Well, maybe I'll flesh it out just a little bit more. All right. So the week after Easter, um, I took a trip to Denver for our Vineyard Leadership Team meeting, and some of you have heard me talk about this guy, because it's, it's I read his book and I've been listening to some of his podcast stuff, but it's really making a big difference in my life right now. His name is Steve Cuss, and um, remember CussWords.com is, ha, 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 that's his podcast. I thought that was funny. Um, so I've read his book, and, and there's some things and some principles that he has th that are really helping me even like in my own growth and in leadership and those sort of things. And turned out um, that our new national director actually brought this guy. He lives in Colorado right down the road, and he brought this guy in um, to do a couple of sessions for us. And it was, it was wonderful, very enlightening for me, very helpful, very empowering and freeing. Um, and I, I left that session with something that... I really want to share with you all that has been very empowering and freeing for me in the hopes that you can take this tool and use it in your lives as well. All right, you ready? So he gave us this phrase, Jesus died and rose again, so I don't have to blank. Fill in the blank, right? Just think about that for a minute. Jesus died and rose again, so I don't have to what? <laughs> die, that's one of them. But whatever it is that weighs you down, what is it that you need to fill that blank in with? What is it that you most need to put there? What old wineskin are you carrying around trying to fill the newness of God with and it's just going to break you? What old wineskin do you need to put aside and put in that blank and be like, you know what, Jesus died so I don't have to do this. You know, maybe it's greed. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's fear of man, whatever. You know, to, to take Melissa's sermon from two weeks ago and put it into this context, Jesus died and rose again so I don't have to be offended. You see how that works? You know, maybe a few more examples. 
Jesus died and rose again so that Josh and I don't have to preach a perfect, wonderful, enlightening sermon every single Sunday and be the only ones who feed you. Jesus died and rose again so that I don't have to build his church. He builds his church. Jesus died and rose again so that you don't have to be the perfect parent or the perfect spouse who never makes mistakes and gets everything right that you can actually say sometimes, you know, I don't know. Jesus died and rose again so you don't have to have all the answers. That you can be okay saying, I don't know. Jesus died and rose again so you don't even have to have perfect theology. He takes care of that for you. Jesus died and rose again so that you don't have to try and make sure everyone likes you. You don't have to try and be someone that what someone else wants you to be to satisfy them. Jesus died and rose again so that I didn't have to come up with a super clever name for this sermon that was like <laughs> Christian clickbait for you guys. I could leave it at something really bizarre that I don't understand. You get my point. You know, now some obviously some of these statements are a bit narrow. Um, they might seem a bit super oversimplistic or superficial. And I want you to understand I'm not minimizing the work of Christ. I'm not minimizing the sacrifice of Jesus, his death and resurrection. And that's why I started this sermon the way I did, with just a very clear outline of what the gospel says and does for us. But what I do think we need to do is realize how incredibly pervasive and permeating the effects of Jesus' death and resurrection can be if we al will allow that maturing process to have its work in us, okay? Because the power of the work of God in those events can and will saturate every aspect of our lives and transform us from the inside out and sanctify us if we let it. And here we are just three weeks later on, what did I call it, Jubilate Sunday, whatever that means, you know, and, and are we still really as engaged with the truth of his resurrection and his forgiveness? Or has it started to fade from our minds a little bit? Has the power of that reality just started to give way to the in and out of our daily routines again? So I wanted to, to share something with you. Um, some of you were here to ex experience it and see it a little bit. Um, just a little something, you know, that I experienced recently so that hopefully we can begin uh, to get a hold of this thing and live it out. So three weeks ago on Easter, you know, Easter is kind of a big deal, yeah, in the Christian circle, maybe a little bit, only the day that changed the course of history and all that. And even though, you know, we're a small church, so we're not like dropping Easter eggs from helicopters in the field across the street or anything like that, but we do like to do something a little bit special, you know, something to celebrate the day, something to be family, um, something to share our joy. Um, and so what we did, what, what we like to do, you know, we got that tent and the tables and the chairs, and I had arranged this food truck to come, and we were all going to eat together and have this great meal. Except, <laughs> yeah, y'all know where I'm going. Those of you who stuck around know exactly what I'm going to say. You know, I, I had done all my due diligence to make sure that that food truck was going to show up at noon and that we were going to be ready to take orders and eat. And at noon, they're not here. And then, of course, it's the one day I forget to bring my phone, so I just commandeer Jeremy's. And I'm texting, and they're not responding. And I get a, a text from Sam that says, food truck scene headed up US-1. They should be there soon. OK, great. 12.30 comes. She, so I get in touch with her. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, running late. We'll be there. We're ready to go by 12.30. 12.30 comes and goes, and they're not here. 12.40 comes around, and they finally pull in the parking lot. And you guys who were here, you saw this unfold. You know how this went. 
So I'm like, okay, great. How long before you're ready to serve? Oh, 12 minutes. Give us 12 minutes. Like 15 minutes later, they're still in there battering chicken, you know. I was okay with 30 minutes. You know, like I'd done my due diligence. You know, I, I'd, I'd planned. I'd, I'd, I'd try to order these things. And an hour and a half later, they're finally ready to like take the first order. Okay, you guys who know me probably can guess what that was doing inside of me. <laughs> and every, uh, yeah, you laugh. Every, you're, you're sitting in here listening to me, so that's, you know, <laughs> I mean, who, who's the dumb one here? I'm just kidding. Um, you know, every update, though, that we got, the anxiety in me began to rise. I was cool with 1230, stuff happens. But 1245 and 1 o'clock and 115, and my own anxiety began to bubble up. And those of you who I trust the most probably heard some choice words for, from me, you know. But it's like, what was really going on inside me, right? Why was that happening? It's not like I had any control over it, really, you know. I did everything I could have done. I planned, I verified, I confirmed again on Thursday. And yet, there was a situation out of my control that for some reason did something in me that was out of character with my being sanctified, reborn self. An anxiety that I wasn't in control of. I actually reflected on this later throughout the week as I thought about our Jesus died and rose again so I don't have to statement. And I'm just going to be really transparent with you guys here. And you know me well enough anyway. I don't have a whole lot of filter. You know, but I believe what was going on there is that there was some sort of weird false gospel playing out. Some untrue narrative that somewhere I was believing. That on this big important day when all the other churches have all their, you know, helicopter dropping whatever. What if this messes up? What if there's visitors or new attenders here that are like, man, they don't have their junk together. And what if we don't get to connect with them? What if they don't come back? What if they look at us and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, that, that church, they don't really have it together, so we're just going to like give them a bad review and leave. You know, there was all sorts of things I think I was believing, not even in my head, but in my heart, that just weren't true, and even if they were true, probably didn't really matter as much as I let them matter. And so I think at its core, it was a fear that if everything isn't all polished and shiny and I'm not in control all the time, people just might not think we're a good church and whatever other ramifications come along with that. All right? Whatever that might mean. Now, for all of you who just started judging me, thinking I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs for thinking this way, I bet you have some of the same stuff. I don't think you're all free from this. Yours might not manifest the same way that mine does. You might not, <laughs> or worse, <laughs> you might not share the same anxieties and same fears. You not, might not fall trapped to the same false narratives and false gospels that I do. But I bet that there's something in there that you trip up on sometimes. Maybe, maybe, maybe just a little. Maybe you lead a team at work and maybe your anxieties and your insecurities come out. Maybe you've got a little bit of uh, imposter syndrome, right, at work. Maybe it's the shame that you experience when you're proven wrong or you don't get something right the very first time. You know, for you, for you teenagers, for those of you in school, maybe it's just that, that pressure of, 
of being in school, especially if you're trying to live for Jesus and be a Christian teenager in school, and that pressure and that anxiety of what other people think of you and wanting people to like you and not put you in the box with those crazy evangelicals, right? There's all these pressures and all these false narratives that we trip over. And I would bet that whatever the manifestation is, most of us at some point are going to feel the need to defend ourselves in these narratives, in these things. That we might feel the need to defend our reputation, our image, our competence, our integrity, on and on and on, whatever it might be. And disclaimer, by the way, this doesn't have to make sense. This doesn't have to be logical because these false narratives, these false gospels, it's not like they're rooted in truth anyway, right? right? They don't have to make sense and be logical. It wasn't logical that I was out there freaking out about, oh my gosh, our church is going to shrink and close because the food truck didn't show up on time, <laughs> right? Like it doesn't have to make sense because that's what this stuff does. It lies to us. It teaches us to live a false gospel. So would you agree with me that the goal of discipleship is Christ-likeness, to be like Jesus, right? That as we're sanctified, as we grow, as we mature, that's our goal is to be like Jesus. So I want to go real quick now. You guys are probably thinking, is, did she forget the scripture? COVID brain got her. Let's gonna, we're going to go and look at some scripture real quick. If you want to turn, we're going to look at two passages. We're going to start in Luke 23. And we're actually going to revisit part of the Easter story. Actually, before he's crucified, before he's resurrected. Jessica, my hands are freezing. I can't even turn the pages. Oh, my word. Oh. Jessica came over there and just started pushing the down button. Like, eh. You know that scene in Toy Story where the pig's, like, hitting the remote? That was Jessica on the, on the thing. She's like, down, down, down. It, these lights do get hot. Fair enough. But not hot enough. All right, Luke... <laughs> Luke 23, 1 through 12 is where we're going to start, and then we're going to go to Matthew 27, 11 through 14. <clears throat> because what I want us to look at here is that if our goal in our sanctification, in our discipleship, is to be like Jesus, Jesus did not have these false narratives that he lived out. He didn't struggle with these false gospels and identity and defensiveness. So let's read about what he did when he faced something that was immense pressure. All right, Luke 23, 1 through 12. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Now, they're at the point. He's had Passover with his disciples. He, Judas has betrayed him. And because of Judas's, Judas's betrayal, he has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane when he went out to pray. Peter is currently in the process of denying him three times. And here's Jesus in custody being brought before the officials by the Roman soldiers. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Now, first of all, no, he didn't. He was pulling coins out of fish's mouths and saying, Render to Caesar what is Caesar, right? So there's already these false narratives, these accusations against him that aren't even true. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? 
You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he, tur when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he was like, uh-uh, I'm done with this. Sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Here's this other pressure. Jesus is going to perform for me. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Man, there's nothing like two enemies being so opposed to you that they become friends. What pressure must Jesus have been under in this moment, in these accusations? Let's jump over to Matthew 27 and just see this one last little bit here with Pilate. <laughs> Matthew 27, 11 through 14. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. So here he is, having all of these accusations, these insults, these questions, these things that aren't true. You know, they're accusations, but they're not even true, thrown at him. The authorities and the crowds are coming at Jesus from every side with questions, and he never bowed to the pressure to either perform for Herod or satisfy the interrogations in front of Pilate. He just never gave in to it. He never bowed to the pressure to perform or act outside of his identity and purpose as he knew it from his father. He was secure in that. He was a non-anxious, unoffended, undefensive presence of peace and identity and security in the middle of chaos and accusation and comparison. Because if you keep reading the story, they release a murderer who had caused an insurrection in his place. Ironic, because that's what they're accusing Jesus of, is trying to stir up this riot, right? And I just wonder, have you ever read this, and Jesus' lack of defense of himself bothered you? Has this ever, like, bothered you, that they're yelling this stuff at him, and you're like, man, dude, just speak up and say something. Why did you not defend yourself? Why did he not at least correct them? What a great gospel-sharing moment, Jesus. You missed it. Tell him the truth, right? Does this, like, rub against your sense of justice in any way? That he's just standing there, and it's just raining on him, and he's just taking it, and he's not defending himself in any way? You know, I've talked about this in other sermons, but being spiritually mature disciples requires that we are emotionally mature individuals as well. And what I love, one of the things I love about what Melissa said the other week is how our emotions are not equipped to steer this ship. 
That was one of my takeaways from that. It's just not. Our emotions aren't bad. They are what they are. We feel our feels, but they're not what's, what's in place to steer this ship for us. They're important. They're important aspects of our God-given nature. They're important in experiencing deep relationships with each other and experiencing deep relationships with God and experiencing creation and the joy that he's given us. But they're just not our plumb line for these things. They aren't our ultimate reality. And yet everything in our culture tells us otherwise, doesn't it? Stake your claim. You know, follow your truth. Go with what feels good now. You know, all of these types of things, even if it's not stated that, bl that blatantly, that's the message. You know, whatever you think the reality is that you should pursue, whatever your thing is, go for it. Whether or not that path actually leads you in a godly, Godward manner or not whether it leads you to a healthy and mature place or not. But when Jesus stood here in front of this crowd with these accusations and these insults raining down on him, he was not relying on emotion to get him through. That's why he didn't have the need to respond. He was pulling from deep wells of maturity that the Spirit had formed in him. Now I want you to think about that. Jesus, too, went through formation. The Spirit worked in him. He was pulling from these wells of formation and freedom that he had as the Son of God, as his identity and who he was. Maturity that grounded him not in what he wanted or what he felt at that moment, but in God-given identity and purpose. And maybe you say, oh, whatever. No, like, he was Jesus. He only wanted to do what the Father was doing. Mm, hang on, let me challenge you on that. Remember when he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane? What did he go and pray? Remember what happened there? Just, it was just the night before this. He went and he prayed that he wouldn't have to go through with what he knew was coming. He didn't want to do it. His will and his feelings and his emotions at the moment were not all gung-ho for being hung on a cross. Roman torture was like not on his bucket list. Okay, he didn't want to. This wasn't what he was going for. Nevertheless, his maturity through faithful obedience to the Father kept him on the path of not my will, but yours be done. Now there's an implication here I think we need to realize that we might not grasp. The implication then, Lord, not God, not my will, but yours be done, is that the will of Jesus wasn't in line with God the Father at the moment, and he was acknowledging it. God, my will is, I don't want to do this. I don't want to hang on a cross and die. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I think we can learn a lot from that moment. Okay? Because you see, Jesus... He didn't live his life as like some superhero deity who was unaffected by this world and unaffected by emotion and temptation. He modeled for us what it looks like when we use the tools we're given, when we use that sanctification, when we use the things that God grows and matures in us at the right times to live out our identities and our purpose. He wasn't above all that. He was right in all of it as our example. So what's going on in us? What's going on in you when you realize, you know, you're thinking this thing or you're feeling this thing or you're being tempted toward this thing, you know, whether you're tempted towards offense or defensiveness or insecurity or worry or whatever it is, you know, what, what's going on in us when that's happening, you know? Um, 
we have these moments, I think, where we realize maybe because of discernment, maybe because of revelation, re <coughs> can't get it out, revelation, wise counsel, you know, whatever the sanctification process has, has done in us, that it isn't God's plan or intention for me to be that way. And yet here I am feeling those things. So what do we do? Well, let's go back to Gospel 101. We repent. Because remember, repentance isn't being sorry. Repentance is changing our mind about something. It's no longer aligning with the ways and the thought processes of this world and aligning ourselves with the truth that God gives us. It's turning in a Godward direction. That's why Romans 12.2 says, do I have this up here? Maybe not. Um, but be, yeah, there we go. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable, the perfect will of God. We change our minds about these things. We no longer do things the way the world does them. We now do them the way that God has revealed us to do them. We are different. We go and we be different. But sometimes we get this backwards. Yeah? Sometimes some of us might try to do the turning before our minds are actually changed and renewed. That doesn't really work very often. I don't know if you've ever tried that. That's just behavior modification, and you might like hang on to that for a little while, but it's not going to last. It just doesn't have a le leg to stand on. You know, I hate licorice. I think licorice is like the worst thing about Easter. I am so offended when I get what I think is a grape jelly bean, and it's a licorice jelly bean. <laughs> it's like traumatic for me. You know, so because I believe licorice is disgusting, I am not going to go eat licorice jelly beans. And I'm not going to start eating licorice, licorice jelly beans unless my mind is changed that, oh, those are actually quite tasty. I'll have some of those, thank you. Our dog loves them. I hate them, so I feed them to our dog, and now our dog loves lic licorice jelly beans. It's really bizarre. But I'm not going to eat it. My actions aren't going to effectively change until my mind is changed. Now, I know that that's a really, like, silly example, but it kind of illustrates what some of us try to do sometimes, how we try to change our behavior without our minds being renewed. We had a college friend. He didn't like cottage cheese, but he bought a whole lot of cottage cheese in like Costco-sized tubs because it was cheap, and he was a broke college student, and he hated cottage cheese. But somewhere he decided, well, maybe if I eat enough of it, like I'll actually start to like cottage cheese. I think Josh and his roommates just ended up with a whole bunch of rotten cottage cheese in their fridge, like in Costco-sized tubs, and it's really nasty. Because we don't change until our minds change, until we repent of the mindsets that are not in line with what God has for us. And I know that that's a silly illustration, but let's change our minds about our need to be defensive. Let's change our minds about our need to prove ourselves. Let's change our minds about this need to appear as though we have everything under control all the time. Right? I think one of the most challenging parts of this, though, is that, real, is that actual awareness of realizing when we're in one of these moments, when something is going on and that's what we're we're facing. And that's where our emotions do really serve us well. Times like this, maybe when someone said, you ever had that thing when someone calls you or texts you, hey, we need to talk? <laughs> Worst words in the English language. We need to talk. I know. Don't do that. I hate that. We need to talk. Or maybe you just got some really bad news. You know, maybe an unexpected bill just came in the mail. Maybe you had a terrible night's sleep. Maybe the food truck that you confirmed three times over to be here at noon and start serving is an hour and a half late and you're afraid the church is going to implode because of it. I don't know. Whatever your external stressor is that causes that anxiety and that defensiveness to rise up in you, we have to be aware of it. We have to realize 
what our mind and our spirit and our body is doing in response to that thing. To realize this and to be present and self-aware, to pick up these symptoms requires emotional maturity. And that's what we have to allow the work of God to do in us. So how did Jesus get to that place? If he's our example, how did he grow in the ability to discern his calling and purpose? How did he have the peace to stand in front of accusing crowds <laughs> and throwing insults at him and untrue things and stand there and not take the bait at all and not defend himself and not, you know, not perform and not, you know, call down angels or whatever. Let's look really quickly at Matthew 26. We're backing up just a chapter from where we were. Um, just three verses here. Matthew 26, 36 through 38. Where are we at? So this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right after he had the dinner and, and communion, what we call communion now with his disciples. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus was very aware of his emotions. Jesus felt his feels. He didn't shove them down. He didn't stuff them. He didn't try to get rid of them. He didn't ignore him. But he also didn't get lost in them. And he didn't let them be the reality and the defining narrative that made him decide what his next steps were, that made him decide his de obedience or not, that, allowed, that it, he didn't allow it to derail his identity and what his mission and his purpose was. He was honest about what he was doing. He named his struggle to those closest to him. He, he called it out. I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He articulates it, that he is crushed. Is it striking to you that the Savior of creation felt overwhelmed? I get great reassurance from that. It's not just me. But he gives me a picture of how to walk through this. He's done it before me. Notice he wasn't complaining. He was just bringing out what he felt in his darkness into the light. I don't know how many of you are like the kind of people when somebody says, hey, how you doing? And you're like, yeah, 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 I'm just fine. Things are great, you know? And when you really like don't mean it at all, you know, even if you've had an absolutely horrific day and horrific week and the way that life is going right now, you're just not really sure how you're going to go and do it another day. And yet, oh, yeah, I'm great. I'm fine. It's not really healthy, guys. Jesus was fully present to how the things coming at him affected him. And he did the only thing that equips us to keep our wits about us, to stay in identity and purpose, to follow maturity, and he, which is he withdrew and he spent time with his father. That's why he was in the garden to begin with. Jesus himself, who's fully God, while being fully man, needed that time of presence with his father. We should not minimize this, guys. Friends, there is absolutely no substitute time in God's presence. There is no Bible study. There is no therapy session. There is no mental health day. There is no pain release. There is no small group. There is no sermon. There is no whatever that can substitute and take the place of time with your father, of time in his presence. There are no shortcuts. And believing that any of those things, they're all good things and they're needed things, but believing that any of them are going to take the place of presence and being in God's presence, again, is just one of those false narratives. And it's going to leave you stuck. 
nothing can accomplish what time in God's presence can accomplish. They're good things, but they're not the thing. And it's, it's good that we recognize them. It's good that we have them. It's good that we exercise our spiritual disciplines and we allow them to serve to mature us. But it is not those things in themselves that make us better disciples. It's the Garden of Gethsemane times where our minds are changed, where our thoughts are renewed, and we are transformed to be who God has created us to be. It is those times that prepare us for the crowds with accusing words. And we cannot forego them. So if the goal of discipleship, and I'm wrapping up here, is Christ-likeness, I think many of us might unfortunately easily arrive at this conclusion then that it is our duty to use these tools at our disposal, these spiritual disciplines or whatever other good things we have, to try and be like Jesus. Because that's our goal, right? Christ-likeness. But I'm going to challenge you with, I think that's nonsense. I don't think we need to try and be like Jesus because that's effort and striving. That's what I can do. Before you call me a heretic, let me, let me clarify. I don't think trying to be like Jesus is our goal. I think our goal is utilizing the tools, the things we have to encounter Jesus, to be with him and to worship him. And it is encountering Jesus that we become like him not out of effort, but out of the grace he's given us. And we do end up Christ-like, transformed, but not of our own effort because of what he has done. So I just want to take that pressure off you. And because of that, you don't have to be defensive. You don't have to defend yourself because he's done everything. There is a big, big difference in trying to be like Jesus and becoming like Jesus because we've spent time in his presence. So what's the point again? Because I don't know. I probably did this somewhere along. You have an invitation to salvation and freedom. You have it. Whether you choose it to accept it and take it or not is up to you. But the invitation is there. He has died and rose again for you. And all of those other implications of that. So you have this implication. Implication. Not only does the cross of Christ save you from your sin, it saves you to eternal life that begins right now so that you have the freedom to no longer be slaves to things like sin and offense and defensiveness and insecurity and pride and jealousy and all those other things. You have that freedom. You have the option of that freedom. But instead of striving and trying harder to make this happen, the answer is to spend time in God's presence encountering him so that our minds are renewed, our hearts are transformed, and we grow into emotionally and spiritually mature individuals, into followers and disciples of Christ that actually do look like him and love like him and behave like him. So be on the lookout for those traps of things like defensiveness. And I want to just leave you with this. Where are you tempted to justify yourself when the authentic work of God in you will speak everything that needs to be said. That's our source. All right. So I just want to invite you into a time of ministry. Um, you know, I know, Becca, some of you probably already got in prayer this morning and the things that have been shared. Melissa, you know, there's still time to do that. Um, Jesus died, so you don't have to whatever. Take a moment and think about that. What is it that God's calling you into freedom in? 
what is it he's offering you freedom in that you can lay it down and be done with it and say and just come to him and say Jesus you died so I don't have to do this anymore you died so I don't have to be this anymore you died so I can be set free from these things so whatever that is I want to encourage you repent repent of that mindset repent of that false belief repent of that false narrative repent of that heart attitude that keeps you stuck that keeps you enslaved doing the same thing over and over and over again with no different outcome so Josh will just leave us in a, a short time of worship um, there are folks who would love to pray with you if you want to just take a minute, you know, like I said, you have that invitation, but it's yours to accept it. If you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time and say, yeah, I'm going to follow you. I want this. This sounds really good. I want to be saved from my sins to eternal life and all the salvation, all the freedom that comes along with it. You have that opportunity this morning to do that and to say yes to him. You have the opportunity just to spend some time in his presence. Lord, change me from the inside out. Take me the next step in my transformation, in my sanctification. Lord, grow me into your likeness. In the uh, seat back pockets there, there's a, a new card that you may not have seen. It's called Next Steps. And there's all sorts of things on there. Um, if you've accepted Jesus but you've never been baptized and you want to be baptized, we'll set up a time to do that. If you want to say yes for the first time, anything else. If you have a prayer request you want us to be praying about during the week, you can put that on the card, and all those can go back in the offering jar. Um, thanks for hanging with me this morning. Hopefully I didn't say anything too really bizarre. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your offer and your invitation of forgiveness and salvation and reconciliation with you that doesn't stop there, that carries on throughout our lives because of your faithfulness and your grace to grow us and mature us and change us from the inside out, to transform us, and that we don't have to try to be different, but Lord, in your presence we become different because you are a good and faithful God that does what you say that you will do. So if you want prayer, you can come up, just make yourselves known. Um, pray for each other, say hey to somebody that you don't know, that if you don't know their name, go introduce yourself and say hey. But don't, don't leave and run out, please, if there's things that the Lord is, is inviting you into that you need to say yes to.